welcome to our latest podcast from the International Employment Team at Stevenson Harwood. I'm Leanne Raven, a Senior Knowledge Lawyer in the Employment Team, and I'm joined by Laura Anderson, a Managing Associate in the team. The 26th of September to the 2nd of October marks National Inclusion Week, a week dedicated to celebrating inclusion and taking action to create inclusive workplaces. Founded by inclusive employers, National Inclusion Week is now in its 10th year. In the context of celebrating inclusion, in this podcast we are going to focus on intersectionality. The term intersectionality has evolved over time, but it has its roots in the law. Laura, can you kick off by telling us the origins of the term? Absolutely. So the term was actually coined in 1989 by Professor Kimberly Crenshaw to describe how race, class, gender and other individual characteristics intersect with one another and overlap. Black women are both black and women, but because they are black women, they endure specific forms of discrimination that black men or white women might not. An American case from the 1970s actually provides an example to helpfully demonstrate the concept. So the case involved General Motors and they had five black women who sued General Motors for a seniority policy that they argued targeted black women exclusively. General Motors hired a black woman before 1964, meaning that when seniority-based layoffs arrived during an early 1970s recession, all of the black women hired after 1964 were subsequently laid off. A policy like this wasn't just gender or just race discrimination, but in fact needed to be looked at on the basis of both gender and race. Okay, so that's a really helpful example to demonstrate how the intersection of two characteristics can actually result in less favourable treatment. And Laura, just as a recap, um, for those who don't know, can you tell us which specific characteristics are protected in UK law? Yes, of course. So, first of all, the main piece of legislation in the UK which provides protection against discrimination is the Equality Act 2010. Um, there are nine what we call protected characteristics under the Equality Act, which are age, disability, gender reassignment, marriage or civil partnership, pregnancy and maternity, race, religion or belief, sex and sexual orientation. And it's against the law to discriminate against somebody because of one or more of these protected characteristics. Now, it's worth noting that some of the terminology used in the Equality Act is actually a bit behind the times. So, for example, the Act refers to gender reassignment, whereas the term gender identity is more commonly used and seen as appropriate nowadays. And that's, I think, just one example of how um, things in society are moving at a fast pace and the law is not quite keeping up with that or, or at least is grappling to. Um, it's also important to recognise that these are protected characteristics in the UK, but these could, of course, differ in different jurisdictions and indeed the discrimination framework can differ in jurisdictions across um, across the world. OK, great. So in terms of the um, protected characteristics in the UK... Do you think that the list of protector characteristics is likely to get longer? We're going to see more characteristics added to that? Yeah, so, I mean, it's a good question, and, and I think I think we probably are. Um, one example um, which has recently been looked into by the Women and Equalities Committee is the menopause. So there has been a suggestion that the menopause should indeed be a protected characteristic, um, and a report was published by the committee into how menopausal women are treated at work and indeed what steps need taken to protect them. The report found that the current law does not adequately protect menopausal women and has called for introduction of the menopause as a new protected characteristic. 
Now, despite this being a recommendation from the report, the government has actually stated that it does not intend on following the report's recommendations and has argued that employees have scope within the Equality Act to challenge discriminatory treatment by employers related to the menopause, claiming under one or more of the relevant characteristics of sex, age and disability. This won't necessarily always be possible, and I think we'll, we'll come on to discuss this later on today. In terms of the other characteristics that potentially may be introduced, there's been some discussions recently as to whether socioeconomic status will become a protected characteristic, as is the case in some other jurisdictions. Currently, socioeconomic background is not a protected characteristic under the Equality Act, which means that if people face discrimination because of their class or assumptions are made about it, then they don't have the same legal protections as they would on the grounds of race or sex discrimination, for example. And indeed, this this has the potential to be an interesting one. If socioeconomic background were to become a protected characteristic, then employers would need to look at their practices, such as offering unpaid internships, which could indirectly discriminate against underprivileged candidates. They would also need to be careful not to be directly discriminating on the grounds of an employee's network or connections, as well as being aware that jokes directed at an employee's regional accent or other social or class identifiers would potentially be acts of harassment actionable against an employer and indeed against the individuals making the comments in the employment tribunal. So although socioeconomic background is not currently a protected characteristic, Section 1 of the Equality Act does actually offer a starting point for change in that it includes a duty on public sector bodies to address inequalities arising from socio-economic disadvantage, whether that be occupation, education, place of residence or social class. This section hasn't in fact been brought into force in England yet, but it has been brought into force in Scotland and Wales um, in the public sector, and that's perhaps a sign of, of what's to come throughout the UK. So that's really helpful. So it's safe to say we might see that down the line, but at the moment there are no kind of imminent plans to add socioeconomic status to the list of protected characteristics, but it's a watch this space one. And and Laura, when we talk about discrimination broadly, what does that actually mean in legal terms? Can you unpack that for us? Yeah, of course. So people often talk about the term discrimination Um, as an umbrella term, but there are actually various different ways that people can be discriminated against and different types of protection afforded by the Equality Act, some of which are more obvious than others. So let's start with the most obvious, um, direct discrimination. So direct discrimination is if you treat an employee less favourably than others because of their age, sex, race or any of the other protected characteristics. So, for example, if you do not promote an employee solely because they are gay, then this would be direct discrimination on the grounds of sexual orientation. Um, And we'd hope that by now most forms of direct discrimination are are pretty obvious. Um, Indirect discrimination is a little less obvious. So this is when there is a policy criterion or practice. It applies to everyone and it appears neutral and often it's very well-intentioned. But in fact, um, it disadvantages a group sharing a particular protected characteristic. So one of the most obvious examples of this is um, if an employer were to have a policy that required all employees to work full time and a mother put in a request to work flexibly or slightly different hours of the day and it was rejected due to the company policy being that all employees work must work full time. 
then given statistically women are more likely to bear childcare responsibilities, this is a policy which is more likely to disadvantage women rather than men, and it would therefore be indirectly discriminatory on the grounds of sex, and the employer would need to defend the claim by showing that it is objectively justifiable as a proportionate means of achieving a legitimate aim. So, for example, that the business absolutely needed you know, all employees to be in the office full-time or in the workplace full-time and that part-time employment just wouldn't work, which I think is quite difficult to do in, in today's modern working world. There are some other forms of discrimination that people are less aware of and that I think some of our listeners might be surprised that are protected in law. So associated discrimination, this is if an employee is treated unfairly because they associate with people of a protected characteristic, even if they don't personally possess that protected characteristic. So, for example, if an employer treats an employee unfairly because their partner is Jewish, then even if the actual employee is not Jewish, then they may still have grounds to bring a claim for associative discrimination because they associate with that person. Another interesting form of discrimination is perceptive discrimination. So this is where an employer treats an employee um, or a potential employee unfairly because they perceive them to have a protected characteristic, whether or not that perception is right or wrong. So, for example, if an employer rejects a CV for a job application from a white woman um, who they wrongly think is black because the employee perhaps has an African-sounding name, then that individual may have a claim for perceptive discrimination on the grounds of race. Okay, those are really helpful examples. Thanks, Laura. I think they particularly demonstrate how there is a wide scope for discriminatory acts, uh, particularly when you take um, associative and perceptive um, discrimination into account. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's also worth mentioning that there are more protections under the Equality Act against harassment and victimisation, which are also centred around these protected characteristics. So harassment is defined in law as unwanted conduct, which has the purpose or effect of either violating a person's dignity or creating an intimidating, hostile, degrading or offensive environment. Now, what's important to note about harassment is it's the effect that it has on an individual that matters, even if the perpetrator didn't, in fact, intend on harassing someone. So, I mean, the, the most obvious kind of example of this and where it often comes up as a defence is some, if somebody has behaved in a certain way or said something and they say it was just harmless banter and I didn't intend on, you know, my behaviour or my actions or my words having that effect... You know, they, they think it was perhaps just an innocent joke um, and they didn't have the intention to harass somebody. That, in fact, does not matter and is not a valid defence if the effect of the conduct um, is ultimately that the individual was offended by it. Now, the caveat to that is it has to be reasonable for the conduct to have that effect. Um, so, for example, there was an employment appeal tribunal case where an employer made reference to an employee of an Indi- Indian origin being likely to be married off in India. This remark, whilst not intended to violate her dignity, you can see it it would be reasonable for it to have the effect that it did violate her dignity and therefore the the employer was liable for harassment in that case. So Laura, you also mentioned victimisation. Can you explain briefly what that is? Yeah, sure. So essentially this is similar to retaliation. So is where an employee is penalised for raising a discrimination claim or complaint um, or assisting another, such as giving evidence at trial. 
and in a way it's designed to protect people who speak up so that they're not victimised as a result of saying that discrimination has occurred. Now it's worth noting with this one that there's no protection if a person makes allegations or gives evidence which they know to be false. However, a person who complains mistakenly but in good faith is indeed protected. Thanks Laura, that's a really helpful canter through discrimination law. Um, So turning now to intersectionality, uh, how does that come into play? So not to get too technical on you here, but Section 14 of the Equality Act is actually a provision which does cover direct discrimination on two combined grounds, which is known as combined or dual discrimination. So essentially this would protect individuals against intersectional discrimination. The main caveat being that this section hasn't actually been brought into effect yet, as the government has deemed it as too complicated and burdensome for businesses. Um, So in short, there's no specific legal protection for dual discrimination currently in force. That said, employees can bring separate claims for different types of discrimination um, in the employment tribunal. So for example, if comments have been directed at a lesbian employee are believed to be both sexist and homophobic, then she may be able to bring claims for sex discrimination and discrimination on the grounds of sexual orientation. Employees cannot currently bring claims where they are discriminated against because of a particular combination of two or more protected characteristics. So, for example, a policy preventing employees from wearing headscarves would discriminate against Muslim women. Now, this policy would not affect other women or Muslim men, so could not be said to be purely sex or purely religious discrimination, but rather it's the unique combination of being both female and being Muslim. And Laura, do you anticipate that the intersectionality provisions within the Equality Act will actually be enacted and come into force? Yeah, so, I mean, this one is really topical at the moment, particularly in light of the discussion around the menopause, which actually provides a really good example to explain some intersectional discrimination. So the menopause is is an area where intersectionality rights would definitely provide protection for women. Um, And as I mentioned, the Women Inequalities Commission report sets out that menopause is, is fundamentally an intersectional phenomenon in that for most people going through the menopause, it involves a combination of their sex and their age. And potentially it could also be classed as disability in regards to what the definition of that is under the Equality Act. But as combined discrimination claims cannot be brought, it means that people suffering from the menopause need to shoehorn their claims into one or more of the protected characteristics, i.e. sex, age or disability. Um, this won't always be possible as it's, it's you know possible for employees to go through early mon- menopause and they perhaps might not therefore then have the age protected characteristic. And a direct sex discrimination claim essentially requires a woman going through the menopause to compare herself to a man um, with an illness which has been described as wrong or demeaning. So, I mean, as a result of this, the Women in Equalities Commission has recommended that the dual discrimination provisions in the Equality Act need to be enacted as soon as possible, ultimately to ensure that this protection is in place and that, that the law is currently not fit for purpose for this issue. Yeah, that's right. So, although we don't anticipate that will actually happen, that they'll be enacted as the government in its report on the menopause has said it does not intend to enact those um, dual discrimination provisions. So I think it's fair to say that until the Section 14 provisions are enacted, if that ever happens, 
employees need to bring separate claims on each of the protector characteristics. So that's the legal position. But, but Laura, is there a cultural element that employers will be concerned about? So will many employers, regardless of what the law says, actually be keen to ensure they're not practicing intersectional discrimination and are treating all employees fairly? And if so, what should employers, managers and individuals do in this regard? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, as I said, it's certainly a hot topic at the moment and one that employers are looking to get ahead of to make sure that they are indeed competitive in the market, actually. And I think whilst there's arguments that the law does not explicitly protect those suffering from intersectional discrimination, um, employers who want to promote a diverse and inclusive culture will obviously still care about the issue and will want to take steps to combat it. So in terms of tips, firstly, I think that the employer needs to take intersectionality seriously. Um, For managers, this can mean that if somebody comes to you claiming that there is intersectional discrimination going on in the business or brings a grievance or a complaint on that ground, then you take it seriously, you investigate it, you make sure that there's, there's a fair process that's carried out. It may be that there's an issue in the workplace that's gone unnoticed And this may be as a result of unconscious bias rather than any intentional malice, or it may be a series of microaggressions, but this should not be swept under the carpet or ignored. And those with managerial responsibility should investigate and look into the claims. And indeed, if they do uncover intersectional discrimination, then they need to take action to address it, Um, which leads me on to my next practical tip, which is do go above and beyond the basic legal requirements. So I think we are seeing this. You see examples of it um, being shouted about in the press because, as I say, employers want to be seen to be a good employer and doing the right thing. But to create a really, truly inclusive and diverse work culture where everyone can speak up and be encouraged to be themselves, um, employers, managers and individuals really do need to go beyond the strict legal requirements. So, for example... Lots of employers are bringing in policies to deal with the menopause and perhaps addressing socioeconomic inequalities through other means such as um, scholarships and making sure that people from disadvantaged backgrounds have the same access as those who are not from such backgrounds. There's also, for example, no legal requirement for private sector employees to carry out an ethnicity pay report. Um, But many employers are choosing to do this voluntarily to better understand the makeup and structures of their workforce. And of course, they can overlay this with any gender pay gap reporting to check that any trends or issues between gender and ethnicity to see if there are any potential intersectional themes at play, even though they're perhaps not required to do this in accordance with the law. If other organisations have gender targets, for example, for female board members, C-suite execs or partners, then they could add an additional lens such as race and ethnicity to that to ensure the progression of minority ethnic women, for example. And finally, it's important to promote a diverse workplace culture and put in place training and policies to ensure that the employer is more than just paying lip service to diversity and inclusion initiatives. So this will likely involve taking a top-down approach to workplace culture, making it clear that bullying and harassment will not be tolerated and will be dealt with seriously, and indeed ensuring that 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 happens in practice. Um, Encouraging a workplace where diversity is championed and where people are treated with mutual respect and dignity. It's also important to remember that what may seem like harmless banter, which I mentioned earlier, will not necessarily be perceived in that way by everybody. And whilst a comment may not be intended to be a form of discrimination or a microaggression, it can have the impact of making somebody feel uncomfortable. 
And I think the responsibility for this doesn't just fall on the employer and the managers, but on all staff to speak up if they overhear any inappropriate comments being made and to be making every attempt to be inclusive in their behaviour and their dealings with others. So yeah, an awareness of these issues with training and policies to educate the workplace will certainly pay dividends in creating an inclusive and productive workforce. Um, and indeed, it's something that's very much expected by regulators these days, such as the FCA and the Law Society. And it will be important for employers to ensure that it is training their workforce in these um, matters in case there is any need to defend a claim further down the line. Thanks, Laura. Those are some really helpful practical tips to finish off with there. So I think it'll certainly be interesting to see if the intersectionality provisions in the Equality Act are ever enacted. But I think the message is that in spite of any specific legal requirement in that area, um, employers, managers and individuals should be aware of the issues and should all play their part in promoting a truly diverse and inclusive workplace and to combat any intersectionality discrimination that does arise, whether it's on a, a conscious or an unconscious basis. So lots of food for thought. That brings us to the end of today's podcast. If you have any questions on this or other employment law topics, please do get in touch with me, Laura, or your usual Stevenson Harwood contact. A reminder that all of our podcasts and e-alerts can be found on our Employment Law Hub, www.employmentlawweb.com. Thanks to all our listeners for tuning into our podcast.